to the extent that is the American Bar Association Business Law Section's podcast series. Our podcasts provide general information. They aren't a substitute for legal advice from a licensed professional. We offer both standalone and serial podcasts on a variety of topics and welcome your feedback and suggestions at ababusinesslaw.americanbar.org. We hope you enjoy your selection. Welcome to the Robot Rules Podcast. I'm Ted Claypool, your host, and this podcast is put together um, as an effort to promote uh, a book that the American Bar Association Business Law Section has published called The Law of Artificial Intelligence and Smart Machines. Um, I am your editor for the book as well as the podcast host, and uh, today we are incredibly fortunate to uh, um, uh, to have a terrific guest with us here, John Garrett. Um, John is, uh, from what I'm hearing, currently uh, Dean and uh, Professor of Law at um, the Nova Southeastern University Shepherd Broad College of Law, which is in uh, Fort Lauderdale. Um, and he has written a chapter in this book on artificial intelligence and labor and employment. And so we're going to talk a little bit to him about it today. Welcome, John. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Um, always our first question on this podcast, um, because it's such a, a moving target, is what is your definition of artificial intelligence? You know, there's a lot of different ways of considering artificial intelligence. And because I wrote the chapter on the impact of robotics and artificial intelligence on employment law, uh, the, the approach that I looked at is really to separate it into three categories. One is specialized machines or algorithms that are able to independently make determinations based on you know, large data sets or other inputs so that the machines have some autonomy in being able to uh, solve particular problems or do particular tasks. Uh, but those are still speci specialized machines. The holy grail, if you will, are for machines of general purpose that can really learn from their environment around them and make decisions based on generalized tasks. And so the self-learning that goes on in both the specialized and the general allows them to essentially mirror what we think of as cognition. And then the third issue, which ties back into it, is uh, the machines themselves, right? So a lot of intelligent thinking is in the form of computers and algorithms, whereas once a machine can undertake independent tasks because it's mobile, because it has interactions with its environment, that robotic side is really a third group of devices or machines. So essentially what it sounds like for the third drawer is um, your uh, self-learning part um, mixed with an ability to uh, interact in the actual physical world. Exactly. So, you know, to use popular imagery, R2-D2, although it doesn't speak English, has the ability to operate a number of other machines or devices. Um, no one would think it looks like a human but it has a lot of independence and the ability to interact with its environment, to learn from its environment. So that is a very sophisticated robot. Um, it is an artificial intelligence of general intelligence at that level. 
Right. Well, and it's interesting because, you know, the laws of robotics may change, the laws of AI may change, but the laws of physics don't change. <laughs> and no, so, it's very you know, true. when you have robots and, and when you have autonomous vehicles, um, you're still going to have uh, collisions and, and people hurt and other problems because operating in the real world means that that's just one of the things that happens. Absolutely. And so, you know, one of the issues that particularly comes up in the employment sector is how do you create machines even today that not only can do their tasks, but that can operate on a machine floor side by side with humans. Very large robotic arms uh, create, pose a real danger for the individuals who are working alongside those. So there's a lot of sophisticated programming that goes on to assure that those machines have a lot of safeguards when they're interacting uh, with the rest of the workforce. Well, and since the days of the Luddites, that's been an issue. I mean, being hurt by, by the equipment that's replacing you um, has often been a, been a problem for workers. So much of uh, machine design is actually geared towards workplace safety, and what we see over and over again is workplace safety protocols tend to interfere with machine efficiency. And so guardrails that stop employees from reaching in to clear machines, uh, two-hand devices so that a worker must be controlling a grip. And employees invariably find ways to make their lives easier or more efficient uh, by circumventing those safeguards. So when we move into more sophisticated robotics, we're going to continue to see this battle between designers who are putting in reasonable tools for efficiency and employers and employees who are looking at speed and looking to circumvent the way that the uh, protections slow down the work process. That makes sense. I'm a, from the manufacturing standpoint, what is it that these robots do better than us? Why are they replacing people? Well, there's a number of reasons why we have moved, you know, going back to the cotton gin uh, from manual labor to uh, machine labor. Uh, once a process is really well known, the cost of the machine, almost no matter how it, uh, complex the process is, uh, the cost eventually is going to be cheaper to have a machine do the work than the individuals do the work. Secondly, in many of these processes, the process itself has some degree of health and safety risk. And that could be, again, the back-breaking work of the cotton uh, picking, it could be the danger of working in coal mines, the size of uh, automobiles coming off assembly lines, and so, and the chemicals that are involved in many of these processes, uh, which are hazardous to one's uh, health working inside chemicals for a lot of the interactions that go on in the machine shop floor. So it is both a safety issue and a financial issue to reduce the number of individuals who are working on the floor and have the machines do the work. The second piece that then comes in is the consistency. There's no question that humans, when they look at quality control and tolerance, 
look at that from a very uh, humanistic uh, view. And so parts that are close to being acceptable may tend to be allowed to go through the computer process, uh, whereas the machine is going to be able to go to a much higher degree of specificity as to what is an acceptable tolerance versus not an acceptable tolerance. And so you eliminate a lot of the problems that go on in the manufacturing process by automating those steps. Of course, when something does go wrong, you don't have the common sense of a human to stop the assembly line to realize where the issues are. So there's always going to be a partnership between employees and machines uh, to make, or humans and machines to make sure that both common sense and problem solving is available as well as the technique and this uh, specificity that comes from detailed machines and calibration. Now that makes sense. And one of the things you point out in your um, chapter is simply that the shapes of the robots um, in manufacturing is, is another great advantage. I mean, there's only so many things that humans can do, um, but you can make a robot be, you know, 50 feet tall. You can make it uh, have uh, 25 arms, you can do any number of things with it that make it um, more fitting for the job specifically than a person is. That's exactly right. We, we think about robots, we keep coming back to these notions of humanoid devices, uh, but robotic arms, uh, you know, giant ovens that have built into them the ability to take yeast and flour, sugar and water, and through each stage in that single device transform that into baked goods. Uh, that one device is a uh, you know, robot. Uh, the fact that each step in it has a particular process uh, built into it, yes, those are things that humans can do, but we're very inefficient at working with high heat. We're very inefficient at working inside certain environments. So being able to make the machine to those tolerance with those specific tools in mind is a lot more uh, useful for speeding up manufacturing. That makes sense. It reminds me of the, the sort of bomb-disabling uh, robots that police are using now in the military. Um, you don't want to have to send a human in if you can send a machine in that's actually set up to do the work better. That's exactly right. And of course, again, that's clearly a safety issue, uh, being able to not put people in harm's way makes a great deal of sense. Well, another thing you talk about in this sense is how um, the rise of the machines, if you will, is going to affect unionization and how unions are likely to deal with them, whether it's feather bedding or, um, you know, other practices that are going to, uh, um, to, to try and adapt the union toward an era where there's more machines and less people in the workplace. Again, this is nothing new. Uh, we have seen this go on throughout all of organized labor, uh, this tension between uh, increased efficiency through the use of machines versus job losses and changes to the way in which uh, the workforce uh, is used. But it's certainly speeding up as machines become more and more sophisticated and as you know, smart machines, uh, artificial intelligence, allows those machines to be used in different ways. Um, feather bedding, which is the notion that jobs are protected and allowed to, uh, to be 
continued even though the actual work has been automated is technically an unfair labor practice. Those laws are very narrowly drawn, however, so in any particular collective bargaining situation, having employees under union contracts required to uh, supervise machines when there's very little for the humans to do, that is not an uncommon uh, transitional bargaining technique. Uh, but, you know, people want to be useful in their jobs. Most people want their job to be meaningful. And so what I predict is that those kind of techniques are not going to be the important ones. Instead, what we're going to see is as the machines become more and more prevalent in uh, new areas, that there's going to be a lot of pressure for funding, retraining, uh, developing ways of engaging the workforce so that the disruption that we expect from this wave of artificial intelligence still allows people to stay gainfully employed and not be forced out of the workforce even as the job requirements are changing. Well, and you use the example in a couple of places of uh, trucking, um, which we know that if, um, if, if the predictions are to be believed, um, you know, we will see lots and lots of self-driving or autonomous vehicles, in particular, particular trucks, which, you know, as you point out, may actually be helpful for us in the short run for um, some demographic reasons. Yeah, trucking is a really good example of where the transition is anticipated to be a positive one. Uh, the trucking industry struggles to employ truck drivers. Uh, there is the uh, perception that uh, as much as one-third of all the potential jobs in long-haul trucking go unfilled. And so rather than being seen as a, disrupt, as a disruptor that's going to knock people out of their jobs, initially the ability to automate trucks really has the potential to just release some of the tension that's there right now in the job market. Secondly, particularly if trucking companies use a point-to-point -point model where they're using distribution centers that are somewhat outside of the urban areas, we can imagine regulations and a system that allows for uh, self-driving trucks on highways, even if those trucks are not allowed in, in inner cities. And so the trucks can go at slower speed for a lot longer because you don't have to have a driver. You don't have problems of the driver falling asleep, working too many hours. The technology allows us to track the truck and the movement of the equipment much, in a much more sophisticated way. We can throw in another technology, and suddenly there's a use for blockchain because we can look at what's on the truck and really be able to identify each product or item on the truck as it moves. And so all of that creates a much safer work environment for the drivers and for the trucking companies, shifting the primary workforce from long haul to short haul uh, trucking. Of course, that's a transition that will take many, many years because of the infrastructure necessary to build an automated uh, self-driving uh, truck fleet. So it will be an, uh, a transition that should not catch anyone uh, by surprise and have less negative impact on jobs. At the same time, of course, if you are a long-haul trucker, it's still going to be a threat to your livelihood 
it is an alternative to your work, which is going to reduce some of the pressure on pricing, which means that there's not going to be as much uh, wage opportunity because you're competing with the automation. So it's still going to affect individuals very directly, even if in the collective it has a positive for society. Yeah, it's just a fascinating area. I mean, they also say, and you didn't talk about this in the book, but, you know, uh, a very interesting um, impact it will have on the ride-sharing and taxi industry, um, other kinds of deliveries, in-town deliveries, um, you know, just throughout any, any of the jobs, of which there are literally millions um, of people who are, who are driving and delivering things, um, are going to be deeply changed by this AI movement? There's no question that the uh, impact of autonomous vehicles is going to have a uh, seismic change on the economy, people's lives. Um, so what makes somebody a you know, part of the gig economy with autonomous vehicles if you simply own the vehicle but you lease your vehicle back to an, a Lyft or an Uber who then puts your autonomous vehicle into the collective fleet. You know, does that make sense? Are we going to pay a lease fee to that driver? What is the liability if the vehicle does get into an accident? You know, and as you pointed out at the beginning, physics is physics. Uh, balls roll into the street. People uh, do not pay attention. Things happen, so we know there's going to be a certain level of accidents in any system that we create. We don't really have answers to those questions yet. Um, going a step beyond that, uh, we're going to see that if autonomous vehicles do become standard, then how we build homes with garages is going to change, how we, where we build, build parking structures. There's a lot of decisions that are based on the roadway system that are arbitrary once the roads have autonomous vehicles. And so that work really hasn't begun to be thought of about how catastrophic uh, the series of changes will be if, if that particular technology becomes widespread. Well, no question. Well, and you also get into the secondary area of how you ensure all of it. Um, I'm, I'm personally interested in the, the generalized concept of, of maybe even having states uh, create, um, you know, no-fault insurance for uh, autonomous vehicle wrecks. So that way, the, unless there's a very specific problem, the manufacturer doesn't have to get sued every time that there's a, that, that there's a problem with an autonomous vehicle. I think your approach makes a lot of sense. Um, you know, when you think about why liability may, works, it is there to change behavior and theoretically to force drivers to be more cautious. Well, in an autonomous vehicle, that's not relevant. So instead, where we want to affect behavior is in the, make sure the manufacturers are making safe equipment and making sure that the owners of that equipment are dutifully and properly maintaining that equipment. And assuming those two answers are yes, the machine was made to specifications, and the machine has been properly maintained, there is no benefit to having fault-based uh, liability rules. And in fact, the transaction costs that go into tort litigation are extremely high. So going to a system of 
uh, no fault insurance to going to a default system where there is simply a policy that says if something goes wrong, this is how it's taken care of to protect the public uh, from risk of loss without ever having to resort to tort liability, suing insurers and the like. Again, that's huge savings at the aggregate level. Uh, people don't realize the transaction costs are high, so high in those areas. And again, that's savings that comes back to the overall system. Yeah, I may quote you on that. I'm planning on writing that up at some point. <laughs> so I, I'll, we'll come back around to that later. But for, for these, these purposes, what we haven't talked about yet, um, but you definitely do in your chapter, and, I, and we definitely have many people concerned about this, is what's likely to happen in the white-collar workforce. Well, again, I think, you know, th there's a lot of predictions about how broad uh, general AI is going to impact uh, the white-collar workforce. And there's no question that if we start with the assumption that we're going to automate that which is the most cost-effective, uh, white-collar workers are a lot more expensive, which means machines can replace the white-collar workforce at a much more cost-effective level than they can at the blue-collar workforce. So it is a ripe area for automation. Uh, the technology continues to improve. Uh, big data systems are able to read contracts and parse data at increasing speed and agility. Uh, the ability to use chatbots to engage with consumers is becoming very sophisticated and is generally rolling out. So we're seeing this transition. The question is not, is this going to disrupt the job market? But the real question is, how do we as a society create a new job market that allows the same workforce to be actively employed in new and developed jobs that have come from this change? For any individual employee, their job may be dramatically different five years from now than it is today. And that's a lot of upheaval. Uh, people are going to be losing their jobs. People are going to be forced to change their jobs into new and differing markets. In the aggregate, it's going to be efficient and beneficial for the economy. But at the individual level, there's going to be a lot of pain associated with that transition. Well, yeah, I mean, if you're a buggy whip manufacturer, it, you know, you can make yourself turn into somebody that makes seat leather for cars. Um, but uh, and the fact that they're making cars and not horse buggies um, has a lot of benefits for society, but you've still got to have a personal change if you're the person that's, um, that's working on the buggies. So, and there's, there are some extreme examples. In China, for example, there are already experiments going on where they have put uh, humanoid-style um, more R2-D2 than C-3PO, but humanoid-style robots in front of high school classrooms uh, to serve as the uh, source of instruction. Um, and you can imagine that, that the notion that you would use a robot to teach a class and the instructor in the class is then there, you know, freed up, as the advocates say, to spend one-on-one -on -one time with the students and provide the social interaction time that's part of teaching, well, that partnership between the machine and the teacher may be very efficient. And the studies that have looked at this, in China at least, 
have suggested that test scores have gone up as a result of that kind of partnership. But that's a vastly different role for the teacher than it was uh, before the experiment. And I think most teachers that I know would have a very hard time uh, being the uh, teacher's aide to the robot at the front of the room. Yeah, but you kind of have to look at it in reverse. And, you know, old guys like us would have that problem. <laughs> I'm not suggesting that, that there aren't a lot of people that wouldn't. However, if you take a look at, at our kids or, or their kids as we move forward in this, um, there's a lot of people that have grown up getting their um, much of their education online or from a computer screen. And so, you know, it's not that different um, to turn this around and say, um, you know, ultimately the computer actually it gets a little more active in the presentation and the actual teacher uh, becomes a little more personal in the presentation. Uh, there's no question that you're, that you're correct when you add that unlike simply showing videos in class, the ability of the robot to answer students' questions, to have the patience to go back and demonstrate as often as the student needs why the student is maybe a little bit off, as one-on-one -on -one interaction also improves, uh, the combination of robotics with technology has the potential to create a very good learning environment for the average student. It may be challenged when it comes to the uh, special needs student or the honor student, right? Part of what we do in the classroom is manage the expectations across, across a wider spectrum. Um, but there's no question that in any given class, a teacher may be better or worse than average. And when you can create average on a sustained basis through the technology, it may in fact gain popularity. Again, yeah. we're at the earliest stages of technology that can teach at that level, um, but it is the shape of things to come, a field that, you know, quite frankly, if you read the science fiction literature, the notion that teachers would be replaced by robots was one of those kind of third rail issues. People really couldn't imagine that we could create machines that could do as much as that, and yet we're already seeing those experiments start to be developed. Yeah, no, and I'm not surprised. Well, I'm, um, and you, one of the things that's happening now in, in both the white collar workforce and the blue collar is using AI um, in hiring. Uh, and that's just uh, going to get more sophisticated. And already, at least in the state of Illinois, um, we have a legislature reacting to it and, and um, essentially putting limitations on how deeply you can depend on AI for hiring. And I think that the reaction to the use of the technology is also an inevitable consequence of large-scale technology being introduced. Um, there was an article in Bloomberg uh, a couple weeks ago that discussed that the U.S. Senate at one point in, I believe it was 1930, actually ripped out their new dial phone machines and went back to having phone operators because of the disruptive influence that dials had on the workforce. So when you come to issues of algorithmic hiring, you're really going to the heart of what is appropriate public policy. The issues that we face there 
is the concern that private companies, when they're developing the algorithms to ask the question, uh, don't have any third party looking at them to make sure that there's not digital redlining occurring, that they're not relying on uh, attributes of the candidate that correlate really with race, ethnicity, or other areas that uh, federal and state law prohibit the employer from discriminating uh, using those attributes. And since we can't know what the uh, for-profit companies are doing to develop those tools, uh, it requires additional regulation to make sure that we're not reinstilling the very discriminatory tools that theoretically the use of technology, which doesn't have human bias, uh, would help us eliminate. At some level, the machines are great because they don't come with the implicit bias that humans come with. But if the algorithms are built by humans with implicit bias, they may replicate it over and over again, and we don't even realize it. Well, and it, and it could develop it on its own as well. It could develop illegal bias. I mean, the example I use often is if you're if you have a machine at the bank that is uh, that determines that people with vowels at the end of their names are poorer credit risks. Um, first of all, it might be right. We don't know. Um, but it doesn't matter whether it's right because that's illegal um, because that means that persons of Japanese descent, persons of Italian descent, um, persons of Latin descent, maybe Irish descent, um, you know, are going to be more heavily affected by that particular decision. And so even, the, even if the bias doesn't come from the human, uh, it still ends up being a bias that we would have to do something about. That's a great example, and there's so many areas where because there is historical biases built into uh, the way K-12 public education is distributed, the way uh, policing occurs in some of our cities, um, housing uh, patterns uh, exist, that those things which have a strong uh, racial correlation, if they get built into algorithmic choice, then we're going to replicate the same discriminatory policies, uh, probably without any intent to do so, but the correlations add up to discrimination all over again. Absolutely. Well, and I want to get into something here because we're, we're getting closer to the end, but I have to tell you, first of all, that I changed what I was going to write on um, in part based on reading your, your chapter. Um, okay. And, and um, and the uh, where I went um, was was jumping off on a position that you wrote about, and so did several other um, people ultimately. But I found that it was a a thread that wove throughout this book of the law of artificial intelligence and smart machines, and that is the possibility that um, AI individuals or artificially intelligent robots may at some point have rights and rights and or responsibilities. And one of the parts that you raise is that some of those rights could possibly come out of the workplace. That was a particularly fun aspect of the chapter. Um, you know, and the ability to take that next logical step and say, okay, most of our workforce rules 
are designed around health and safety issues uh, for the uh, workers, for the employees in those environments. And those very rules are not only inapplicable for a smart machine or a robot, but in fact create limitations on the robot that may create unfair labor practices. Uh, so the eight-hour workday, which is essential to the health and safety of the general workforce, really is inapplicable to a machine that doesn't sleep. Uh, the same thing is true of a number of procedural safeguards, OSHA regulations and the like. And so designing a regulatory world that is built for the robots, you'd have one completely different model. Ultimately, what we have to figure out, what I think the legislatures of the next generation are going to struggle with, is how do you create a system that's fair for both the human workforce and, if we get there, the autonomous uh, sentient uh, workforce if we do ever develop those kind of robots. And that's going to be a real challenge, and we're going to see the same kind of clashes in culture and history between those sentient uh, uh, machines and the workforce that preceded them that we've seen in other big clashes in generational change in the labor industry. Well, there's no question about that. And you sort of look at it and say, at what point is the, you know, is, is this individual that we're treating um, a slave? Um, at which point does it move from being a machine uh, to being a sentient being that I am uh, I am ordering to do whatever I want it to do. And that's going to be a very difficult question to ask. Uh, there have been efforts made by PETA and other organizations uh, to try and develop that question in the context of uh, smart animals. Uh, you know, one can think of elephants as being particularly uh, thoughtful. Um, and the courts thus far have rejected the ability to bring those cases. Um, but there's going to come a time when machines, particularly if we get to general artificial intelligence, where the machines are going to be asking those questions. And when we have those devices uh, being able to ask those questions, then autonomy starts to become very important. And the obligation to pay rather than to own is going to flip the entire workforce. Well, one of the things it seems to me is that and I didn't even really deal with this deeply in my chapter, um, which covers just this and nothing else, um, is that you, you really start to get a question or a problem when your AI becomes more general and when it might have things to do with the money that you would pay it or when it would, it would have preferences outside just the things that it was, it was paid to do or not paid to do, but, but assigned to do in the workforce. You think about in the, the creative context, uh, I do a lot of work in the copyright industries, and you think about how cameras today are able to look at what they're photographing, what the lighting conditions are, uh, and make decisions about what is the right mix of shutter speed and frame and color range to create the best picture as an automated design picture. 
Well, it's not much of a step forward to say the individual who took the camera out is far less engaged in the choices about creating that work than the algorithms inside the camera that are making all the choices on framing, lighting, color, composition, and arrangement. And so who's the real author? And you, a small step from if the camera can own copyright in its own photographs, then does the machine that generates the marketing material for the company own the copyright in that marketing brochure, and from there you move on inexorably into don't we want to recognize the autonomous rights of this of this machine? Yep, absolutely. I mean, it's a it's a really interesting question. Um, well, let me let me um, conclude with the uh, question that I'm asking everybody um, in this series, which is what is what is your favorite depiction? of artificial intelligence in media and why? Well, I am a fan of the genre, so I have watched uh, many of them. But I always go back to Metropolis. Um, it is a brilliant film from the 20s, um, which really captures the essence of what we're talking about and captured it you know, close to 90 years ago uh, visually. Um, you had RUR, Rossum's Universal Robots, um, a play from about 100 years ago that set this notion in place. And in Metropolis, you really captured visually a beautiful robot. And it, it, it is an Art Deco film. It is gorgeous visually. But it really asks all these questions as to what is the worker, what is the robot, how do they get along, um, and so while it turns into a bit of a horror story, a Frankenstein uh, story, at its heart, it's a deeply philosophical uh, motion picture. And visually, it's one of the most beautiful robots that's ever been put on the screen. And we're speaking of Machine and Mensch. Is that, uh, is that correct, Fritz Lang's uh, uh, great creation of, uh, of, of a robot in Metropolis? Exactly. I, I think that's a wonderful choice. Um, well, thank you so much. This has been a terrific conversation, and we really appreciate it. Um, we've been talking uh, today with John Garron, who's the um, dean and um, a professor of law in the Shepherd Broad College of Law in Fort Lauderdale, and, um, and a good friend for a long time and an excellent author. So look up his other stuff. and. Uh, and, and I think you'll appreciate it. Thank you, John. I appreciate your talking today. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate being here. Thank you for listening to the ABA Business Law Sections podcast series, To the Extent That. The section offers a robust collection of content. To explore more about this topic, or to learn about joining the section, visit ambar.org slash bizlaw. That's B-I-Z-L-A-W.